1: Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Wednesday, April thirteenth, twenty twenty-two. This is episode number two hundred and fifty-seven. I'm Susan Sorries, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book "What's Growing in Grandma's Garden" and Cannabis's favorite grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at nine a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us in over twenty-nine thousand states of Cannabis news, our members if you'd like to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about sales are high in Montana, MainStem, a B2B platform snags a Microsoft chief data officer, Virginia Nix's state registration requirements, Cannabis entrepreneurs are damn mad in Amsterdam tribes are being left behind again a big bust in Portland and many other frosty nuggets so stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the state of cannabis news hour the following program contains coarse language and nudity viewer discretion is advised Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis Hour. What you got, Rico?
2: Ah, oh, man, I got some big news. So Microsoft's field chief data officer joins board of Cannabis Data Company. Here's what he's doing. My story's out of uh, Forbes uh, from our good friend Javier Aceh. Uh The MSOs are done playing games, y'all. Big data is officially in the building. According to Javier Ace. Uh, Microsoft's field chief data officer for the West. Matthew Smith has just announced he's joining the board of mainstream of cannabis industry focused B2B supply chain and integrated procurement platform. Smith spent nine years at Microsoft building global enterprise business transformation initiatives across a variety of B2B and B2C industries focused on supply chain, high tech platforms, retail, manufacturing, healthcare, media, entertainment, and telecommunications. The dude was one of the most important decision makers at Microsoft at the time, he's now slotted to serve on Mainstream's board through 2024, providing strategic guidance on data analytic innovation, joining Thomas Harrison, senior operating partner at Mer- Merida Capital and Mainstream chairman and CEO Alan Nguyen. Agent Smith's job will be supercharging Mainstream's ecosystem of companies and suppliers' ag- aggregated market read, allowing them to provide global supply chain intelligence captured in real time. In the article, he says he'll be helping Mainstream accurately forecast to help improve planning processes, uh, increase optionality, predict variations in demand and prevent supply chain bottlenecks so companies no longer have to make gut-based reactive decisions. Data-driven companies always have a strategic advantage over competition, giving them more agility and communication around mergers and acquisitions. Listen closely to this part. With M&A activity presently leading the game in cannabis, I'm personally very excited to be joining the board of a company so well-poised to powerfully revolutionize it. Rapidly growing MSOs simply cannot afford confusion, inaccuracy, and more importantly, ill-informed costly decisions abroad, abroad. My job will be helped uh, to help create one version of truth, shape industry data consumption patterns and performance indicators for the global ecosystem at large. It's a lot to unpack there, but I'd highly recommend taking the time to read this whole piece and don't forget checking between the lines too. This is the future we were laying the foundation for back when I was at Baker Technologies, late 2016 to 2018. The difference was we built a platform available for everyone from trappers to small brands, as well as the first big players that would eventually become MSOs. Mainstem's product is specifically built for the big boys, potentially giving them the power to leapfrog competition like we've never seen before in our industry. I'll be watching their development closely, but for all the smaller players across the supply chain, now is the time to be smarter than you ever have been in the past. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but if these billion dollar companies are already seen to legacy players as a nuisance because their pockets are so deep, predictive data being driven by a guy who already conquered that world in the mainstream is a whole new ball game. Be prepared. This is Rico Limit, the dopest dad on the street, reporting live from the State of Cannabis Hour. I'd love to hear what the rest of the team has to say about this one.
3: But well, does he I
1: smoke weed? It?
3: Well, I'm, I'm happy that probably not. I agree. But I'm happy that there is going to be some um, some, pro, you, you know, when you see one cannabis company um, do something like this, you're going to see the rest start following suit. And we just had a conversation about supplier diversity, which is I'm passionate about. And you can't measure supplier diversity in the supply chain unless you understand exactly what you're buying and having some type of way to manage that data. And so if this creates an opportunity that supports supplier diversity or that allows us to hold, you know, cannabis companies accountable on that side of the um, social equity conversation. I'm happy for it.
2: I mean, we'll wait to see if they're going to be doing that, but I would be very, very, very cautious. Um, at best. I would prepare for for, for war with a lot of these companies. Um, We thought that was going to happen to us at Baker Technologies. It didn't. A bunch of chads came down from uh, Canada, took over, and they just wanted to work with the biggest companies in the industry because that's where the money is. Period. So these people saying that they're going to be focusing on MSOs from the jump, um, these motherfuckers, they already have billions of dollars. So they're going to be pumping billions of dollars into data initiatives to make them expand quicker, to make them expand and uh, improve their supply chains. And a lot of people are going to get left behind
3: well the, the key thing that you said in your in your article was it was all supporting on procurement it creating efficiencies and economy of scale and understanding what you're buying and being more flexible and i just believe that if you have a company that's invested and you you come out with this whole press release you got the forbes covering it you're going to have msos try to follow suit and for those well, well they are it, they, right. it's,
2: it's only for msos right
3: well, so, so there it is. They're, they're already doing it. So I guess my point is, is the fact that, with, again, it referenced mergers and acquisitions. So when you have a, a Cresco that then, you know, merges with Columbia Care, you don't even know what you're buying, what you're not buying. And I'm just talking from my perspective of how supplier diversity, where people want to have this conversation with me about that. However, they have no type of way of understanding what they're buying, how they're buying. They're not flexible right now. So if you look under the hood. Many cannabis companies have no idea of the data that that's there or they're not even capturing it correctly. And I just hopefully think that this particular move and if they can, you know, um, you know, really nail down this process, this will help my argument to um, make supplier diversity a, a a priority in this industry.
2: So that's all. Yeah, I, I, I hope the smaller companies 100 percent. I hope they get smarter about their data immediately and just know these motherfuckers have a nuke everybody else coming in with it coming to the game with AKs it's, it's not so, the same.
4: Are, are they just talking about like supply t- chain data management or are they talking about marketing data in terms of targeting the consumer because in my experience you know sure the back end we can all get more efficient but being efficient at selling booth is still selling booth so I'm not that worried and my experience with data in terms of market And consumer market is they always get it wrong because they're under they have so much cannabis shame that they can't interpret the data. You can have all the data you want if you're misinterpreting it because you don't understand how the consumer is evolving. Because you think cannabis is going to stay at two milligrams a dose, it's still not that great. So, in a way, I'm concerned. In a way, I've seen you know big data and companies try to get into it, but data is just a resource. You still need the human factor and some intelligence to navigate it.
2: I think they'll have the money to to buy up all of that stuff. That, that's what I'm concerned about. Uh, they have the money to buy up all that and also to bring in bigger billion-dollar players and investors to just leapfrog everybody else. It's, it's It's all about the money, and these guys have the money to do that and to just blast forward and just leave everybody behind.
3: Well, I know Dutch is over in our comments. She made a great comment. She says, "Will this support quality and diversity. And no. that's where, and that's where it's. And back to Guy, your point, like, I think this is not a consumer facing type of um, data that they're getting. They're getting it's efficiency on the back end for them to be able to be more nimble and to make like when you're make, making your buying decisions. And when you are, are planning and doing your forecasting for, you know, 12 months, 18 months out um that stuff really matters so i think that's what the data that's what they're trying to focus on but um yeah we'll wait and see
5: this is an amazing smoke screen i want to I just want to do a round of applause for the MSOs, because obviously they have you all fucking duped. They don't give a fuck about social equity. They don't give a fuck about diversity at all. And Raj, you're taking the bait hook, line, and fuck. Well, you know
3: what? I tell you what they they do give a fuck about. They give a fuck about consumers. And eventually, when legalization happens and then you are able to do report cards on people and consumers have a choice as, as to what brands they buy and where they go to buy their stuff, buy their weed, yeah, they're gonna care about it. So smart companies will care about it now. And I will always be the forever optimist to figure out how do I get the priorities that are important to me, get them addressed. If I took your attitude, I'll be around here just allowing companies to come in
2: and just rail all over me. So I'm sorry. That- uh, uh, You're Roz, such a just,
5: dreamer, and I love it, Rod. Yeah,
2: but my my prediction, like, like my pessimist ass, uh, uh, um, uh, realist ass uh, prediction is this guy, after nine years at Microsoft mm-hmm. and just joining the industry, he's going to be the, the cannabis czar of whoever the next president is. This is, <laughs> is going to be Joseph this is Chad Biden's cannabis or Brad, czar, whichever one you want to call yes. him. Chad Senior.
6: With any amount of data, I mean, can these companies actually um, achieve profitability as we add more and more taxes to the uh, to the consumer and with the illicit market? I wonder, you know, how much this will actually help them.
2: I think the biggest companies are in the game. They have they have more power to, to to get those taxes reduced than any of us do because they have more money and they can lobby harder than, than than we can. And um, and the sad part about it is when these taxes start to come down on a broad level, it might be too late for a lot of the smaller players.
1: Well, on that note, <laughs>
2: <laughs> happy Wednesday!
1: Oh my God! Uh. Let's get some money from them. All right. Next up is co-producer Jason Beck. His provocative spin keeps the show popping. He has proven to be one of the most resilient players in the weed game since first starting his first store in San Francisco, and he is the Cannabis Tourism Mayor of West Hollywood. What have you got today, Jason?
7: Oh,
5: yeah. Thank you so much. I super appreciate it, Susan. Today... My story comes out of Virginia for all of my liberal friends who are all naysayers about Republicans and they do no good for cannabis. Well, guess what? My story today is for you guys. That's right. Where Virginia law nixes the state registration requirement for medical cannabis patients. The medical cannabis market in Virginia just got cleared for an express lane. Governor Glenn Youngkin. Signed into law this week, legislation to eliminate the requirement that people register with the state's board of pharmacy before being cleared by medical cannabis products from approved sellers in the Commonwealth. The new rule, which goes into effect July 1st, is aimed in part at clearing a backlog of 8000 registration requests from customers awaiting to buy from a handful of medical operators that are only that are. That are the only companies legally allowed to grow, process, and sell non CBD cannabis products in Virginia. Del Roxanne Robinson, who sponsored the bill version of the legislation, said the bill came out after she was approached by medical cannabis operators that wanted to improve people's access to their products. By eliminating the Board of Pharmacy registration, patients will have quicker access in acquiring their therapeutic prescriptions of medical cannabis, Robinson said in an email. Registration with the state's Board of Pharmacy entails a fee and a 60-day waiting period, and there are currently about 47,000 medical cannabis Patients registered with the state, according to the Board of Pharmacy spokeswoman Diane Powers, patients will be required to secure the written certification from the registered health care practitioners before they can buy medical cannabis products and registration with the state. Uh, will be required until the law takes effect medical cannabis operators will report the number of new certifications received monthly to the board under the new law well congratulations virginia you guys are going to have faster access as of july 1st which will be right in time to celebrate your freedom on the fourth of july and this is jason beck
2: reporting for the state of
5: Cannabis news hour
2: it's good news coming out of virginia shout out to all my people out there uh, be, easy, uh, be able to Easier have an easier path to their medicine. Um he folded the pressure. You know,
5: he did not fold under pressure. He, he fucking he did He's what soft. the people wanted. He cut soft. that shit out, bro. He He's has soft. fucking good people. He is soft.
8: We have got the people what they want. He is not soft. Huh?
2: Softer than a pillow. Satin totally. pillow. I see somebody somebody's messing around with the my pillow
5: guy. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations, Virginians. You not only elected a very good governor, you also did are gonna have gracious sales with medical cannabis available to you guys. So I'm very What we'll makes him a very action. good
2: governor, Jason. He just did this. He, protect-
1: <laughs> he did this
8: and he's Republican.
2: Yep, and he's
5: Republican. And he
2: protect, protects kids from vicious mask mandates. Shall I continue? Welcome, welcome, welcome back, Sarah. Hey, hey. But you, you know what? There was a lot better stuff already in place before he got into office. And he created a bunch of drama just to oh, be like, oh yeah, I fixed it. Sounds very trumpy to me. He fixed it, Rico. But you can't you can't make so the bad candidates. the enemy of the good. <laughs> They still have cannabis. Yeah, you make up some fucking problems, and then you fix them. Oh, yeah, I'm the greatest. Sounds very Trumpish. Well,
5: I mean, at least it's not something like what we have with Biden, where he just makes problems and can't even fix shit. <laughs>
6: Did you just say you can't make the bad the enemy of the good?
5: 100%. You cannot make the bad the enemy of the good if you want to pass meaningful legislation.
2: What does that even mean? It's a fact. It, it's it, very it, self-explanatory, it, it Rico. means politics. Uh, I'm just happy uh, people can get, get uh, have an easier path to getting their medicine in Virginia, man. I'm, I'm happy about that. But um, all the drama was unnecessary, and Yunkin and, and his goons didn't even have to cause all any of that.
5: Rico, save the drama for your mama.
2: Tell that to your boy Glenn Yunkin.
8: the one who
1: gave I- people cannabis. Okay. Just, what? just give
5: the man some praise, Rico. You know he did something great for your home state. Yeah, I mean, patients are going nice. to benefit. Y'all, your family is going to benefit. You know what I'm saying? It's going to be turned up in your in your towns.
2: All right. Up next, <laughs> anybody else want to comment on that? Other than these uh, um, the, these conservatives that are attacking me from every side here? You are not being no, attacked.
5: Cause... Quit trying to play the fucking victim role, bro.
2: Hey, man, I, I feel very triggered right now. The,
9: the phrase is, don't let perfection be the enemy of the good, by the way. Don't let the bad be the enemy of the good? Yeah. <laughs> is that what Jason don't said? Be, don't don't,
2: <laughs> oh, no. You said it with such confidence, though. I, li- I like that. That's it. That's got half a, the game. I've
1: got a new soundbite. That's half
2: the game. <laughs> well, I love it. So up next, she's the CMO of the award-winning tech platform event high and co-host of the groundbreaking women-focused Blunt Brunch event series, taking us to the next level of cannabis events. Adelia, Carrillo, what you got for us today, please? Good
10: morning. I am needing a minute. My computer restarted on me. So I don't know if we want to skip to, to the next person and then I can go right after, if that's cool?
2: We can do that.
5: All right. Well, coming up next, we have Menika Mahajan coming up to the stage. She's a pot-loving PhD and champion of common-sense cannabis policy, a real-life alternative activist remaining optimistic in the midst of cannabis chaos. Coming next to the stage is Menika Pagan. What do you have for us today, girl?
6: Good morning. Uh, Today I'm covering a headline from the Oregonian. Portland man sentenced to prison for smuggling $2.5 million worth of Oregon-grown marijuana out of the state. Written by Maxine Bernstein. Since Oregon became the third state to legalize adult use cannabis in 2014, much of the surplus is moved outside the state, according to a report from the Oregon Idaho High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area. Here are some stats from the 2020 HIDTA report. And that acronym is two letters too long. Right, Rico? Um, so there yes. were 2,322 arrests, 92 wiretaps, and 744 firearms seized. 57 drug trafficking organizations and money laundering organizations disrupted or dismantled. They seized 139,000 kilograms, 815,000 dosage units, and more, with a calculated wholesale value of $748.6 million, and they seized over $15.8 million in illicit cash and other assets. So based on those calculations and their $4.34 million in baseline and discretionary funds, Uh, They claim that enforcement generated an ROI of $176 for every dollar spent. So this is the story of one such enforcement activity where a trio is accused of interstate drug trafficking. First, here's the story from the perspective of prosecutors and court records, and then I'll tell you what's happening uh, in the case. So an Oregon man, Robert Benjamin Kawika Dawe, the defendant, Along with two accomplices, shipped more than 2.5 million dollars worth of Oregon-grown cannabis, a thousand kilograms, to New York, Ohio, Oklahoma, Georgia, Texas, Arkansas, Illinois, and Minnesota. Product was stored in a warehouse at first, and later at the defendant's home. On October 16, 2020, police intercepted two vehicles. The defendant and defendant, excuse me, and accomplices had hand-built crates packaged the cannabis in them for shipping driven the crates off the property and transferred it to a 53-foot refrigerated trailer, which was destined for San Antonio, Texas. When police stopped both vehicles and searched the trailer, they found 276 kilograms of vacuum-sealed flour with strain labels, according to court records. Police also searched the man's home, seizing 108 kilograms of cannabis and $7,000 in cash. The trio allegedly used two companies, a logistics company and a payment solutions company, to disguise the nature and source of drug trafficking proceeds, created false cargo bills, and flew to the destination cities to personally receive the shipments and then distribute the cannabis in different states. The man and his accomplices would then fly back on commercial carrying cash or they would deposit it in bank accounts. So there's your kind of little how-to guide, apparently. Those are the basic details of the case against these three men, according to the court records and prosecutors, as reported in this article. The defendant pleaded guilty to conspiracy to traffic cannabis. On Monday, he was sentenced to two years and nine months in federal prison. One co-defendant was sentenced in February to a year and nine months in prison. The other co-defendant is awaiting sentencing and pleading guilty to conspiracy to traffic in 1,000 kilograms or more. Although cannabis is, quote, legal... In some states, stories like this show that the war on drugs is far from over. As we've discussed many times, states some states have over-permitted cultivation, and then we have cities which are under-permitting retail. So that means that even within the licensed supply chain, there's more production than could ever be legally sold. So what do you do when you have too much weed produced in a state? You destroy it, you throw it away, give it away, or sell it to somewhere else. And that's exactly, that last one is exactly what these three uh, gentlemen are accused of having done. I'm Menica reporting for the State of Cannabis NewsHour.
2: What say you about that Oregon, that good old Oregon weed, Jason? Hey, you know, I, I, where, where was
5: this guy uh, convicted at? Was this a federal charge or was this a state charge?
6: The, the judge in this case or the sentencing attorney is a U.S. attorney.
5: Okay, so this guy was charged federally because because he was trafficking outside of state line. So for all you people that say that you can bring weed across state lines, guess what you can't because shit like this happens.
6: Yeah, there's a whole enforcement. I mean the Oregon, Idaho, I know we talked about this before on the show and sort of the, you know, the sense that a lot of this uh, cannabis is being moved across that border. And so the the it's the ONDCP, the Office of National Drug Control Policy that's been providing these funds for, for the interstate trafficking.
2: And just remember $2.5 million worth of Oregon cannabis is about $5 million everywhere else. Hold on. That's about
5: 2.5 million pounds actually Rico, because it's Oregon boof. <laughs> oh, <God>.
2: oh no.
1: <laughs> okay. Let's keep smoking the news.
2: Let's do it. now trying this again. She's the CMO of award-winning tech platform event high and co-host of the groundbreaking women-focused Blunt Brunch event series, taking us all to the next level of cannabis event bliss. Up next, Adelia Carrillo. What you got for us?
10: Good morning. Yes, it's ba- I'm back now. All right, so Montana marijuana sales total 73 million so far this year. This was written by Seaborn Larson of the Montana State News Bureau. Uh, so Montana's recreational cannabis sales uh, through the first quarter of the market's first year are going above projections and it's not even touriz- tourism season yet. Um, there has actually been over 72.9 million in cannabis products sold by both medical and recreational providers in Montana. And this is according to the figure Released uh, on April 6 by the Montana Department of Revenue, um, in March they had their biggest month yet in recreational cannabis alone, reaching over 15.9 million, where medical sales came in at 9.8 million. And although they are projected to see uh, 130 million in recreational sales in 2022, um, unfortunately, some are concerned that the trajectory may slow down. They are um, there's a, a cannabis opposition group saying it's. Long- launched a county-by-county campaign to to ban recreational marijuana business where the margins on the 2020 legalization vote were slim Uh, to pushing recreational cannabis sales out of Montana's largest county. The group is actually called Safe Montana. They're an anti-marijuana group led by Billings car dealer, Steve Zabalwe. They state that they raised $14,000 to support Yellowstone County opting of recreational cannabis sales. Um, But in reality... It's his money. He put in 13500 and he raised $500. Um, so the state campaign finance records show the group has also set up another committee for similar efforts in Granite County, which has a population of 3,300. And a few things to note. Um, Montanians (laughs) passed a constitutional ballot initiative in 2020 that legalized cannabis use and possession statewide. However, 27 counties currently have a ban on recreational cannabis sales. And only one county called Dawson has so far used the opt-in, opt-out provisions uh, passed by the legislator. To so flip the county from red to green. Um, Zabawe has stated he's making a bet that there's less people that want recreational now that the reality is coming to them dead in the face. However, uh, many areas are seeing a benefit through cannabis tourism. If you look at the earliest forecast from the Bureau of Business and Economic Research, um, they're predicting that out of state customers would be their longest driver, bringing in about 30 million in 2022 and 84 million in 2026. also noted in Montana, uh, they could see more than a quarter billion sales annually for recreational cannabis alone. They have a baseline of 20% tax on recreational sales, and Montana's tax revenues could be more than $50 million each. Um, the article goes more in depth into showcasing the numbers for Yellowstone County, uh, Glacier uh, County as well, um, and it also interviews a couple organizations that are in the cannabis sector. Um, the figures released by the State Revenue Department also show Montana is actually nearing the $10 million. million mark in tax revenue from recreational and medical marijuana sales to date um with that being said you know what do you all think has anyone been to montana since they approved medical or recreational and do you think there's a chance montana will turn away cannabis tourism and begin banning more counties this is adelia and i'm reporting for the state of cannabis news hour pot is
1: popular the people want it The, the elected officials need to just get that
2: yes indeed and um I didn't know Montana had that in
9: them, <laughs> 100%. Montana only has 1 million people in the whole state. These people are really punching above their weight. So Each of them bought $73 worth of weed.
1: Well, no, people are driving from other states, which is ridiculous. It's like, don't you want to keep that revenue in your state?
9: Not if you're Idaho. No, no, no.
10: Right. Yeah, it said alone in Yellowstone County they had um, in March – it accounted for $4.5 million of the $25.7 million total in statewide sales, just in Yellowstone County. So that, that's crazy, but that shows cannabis tourism.
9: So that's got down by Idaho and Wyoming border. They're just coming, coming right across. I'm not sure
5: if that shows cannabis tourism. It does show the fact that people want to buy weed regardless of what state they live in. Yeah, good point.
1: It also shows that a lot of weed is crossing state lines one ounce at a time. A or maybe they're stopping
5: r- at a whole bunch of stores and buying a whole bunch of ounces, Susan.
2: I bet Mainstem can tell you exactly who bought exactly what, at what hour,
9: and where they're from, too. That's right. Let's get big data on the case.
1: <laughs> okay, we're going to relight the room. Man. You
0: are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose.
7: The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions
1: of any opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers.
8: Viewer discretion advised.
1: Let's keep smoking the news.
2: Our next correspondent is a communication strategist and publisher of the American Cannabis Report. When he loses those glasses and leaves the next hot box phone booth, you know what time it is. It's time for motherfucking Superman of the industry. Christopher Smith, what you got for us today, my man?
9: Thanks more uh, thanks, Rico. Good morning Jason and Susan. I, I don't typically uh, pimp my own work on the American Cannabis Report here, but about a month ago I interviewed Mary Jane Oatman, whom I know many of you know. You can see it on YouTube if you like. She's a member of the Nez Perce tribe, in uh, speaking of Idaho. Uh, she's a direct descendant of Chief Looking Glass, who was killed by the U.S. Cavalry in 1877 while attempting to lead the tribe to safety in Canada alongside Chief Joseph. So that makes Mary Jane royalty in my book, and not only do I admire her for her legendary family member, but for her own courageous work on behalf of tribal cannabis communities. Mary Jane founded the Indigenous Cannabis Coalition and is active nationwide, helping tribes achieve their potential with cannabis and hemp. My interviews are sometimes as short as 30 minutes, but my chat with Mary Jane was an hour and 45, and I learned an incredible amount during our conversation. It was very humbling. Uh, Much of it broke my heart. So this article titled Tribes Left Behind by America's Marijuana Laws caught my attention. I appreciate the opportunity to share it here because I think a full accounting of the damage of the war on drugs must include our indigenous tribes. Mary Jane told me, for example, about being at her grandparents' house when she was a little girl and they were raided by a SWAT team and that both of them were sent to prison. After all for having six cannabis plants in their personal garden, their grandmother was sent out of state to prison and intentionally bunked up with a white supremacist in her cell. So that kind of harassment has not stopped. The article tells of the Picuris. A Pueblo tribe near Taos, New Mexico. Even though native tribes are sovereign nations, in November 2017, Bureau of Indian Affairs officers entered Picuris land and pulled up approximately 30 medical marijuana plants that the tribe was growing. At present, pri- present day prices, the flower would have been worth at least $100,000, $100, which really hurts a tribe of 300 that are among the poorest people in the whole state. Medical cannabis was legalized in 2020 in New Mexico, but in December 2021, three Bureau of Indian Affairs officers entered Picurus Land again, according to a letter of the tribe detailing the raid, pulling up nine medical plants grown at the home of an owner of a medical card. In California, tribes can't sell their products in dispensaries around the state, nor can they sell other California-made products in their own dispensaries because the state still has no system for allowing native tribes to participate. In order for that to happen, the state legislature would have to take action to create a compact system, and the Department Department of Cannabis Control cannot enter into those agreements on its own. So... Here we have six years into the adult use in uh, legalized in, in uh, California, 26 years since medical, but our indigenous tribes are still left out of the biggest market in the world. It's shameful. New Mexico launched its adult use market on April 1st. Governor Grisham has worked to find a solution for the tribes. The state of New Mexico signed a 10-year agreement with the Pecuras Pueblo that's intended to provide protection from federal uh, intervention. But U.S. Attorney Fred Federiki. Uh, told the tribe the state compact would not protect them from federal interference. The Pecuris are therefore considering growing cannabis off tribal land, a solution that will offer more protection from the federal government, but which may mean that they cannot use their historic water rights. Hot commodity in New Mexico, it's one of the few economic legs legs up that the Pueblos have in their state. So from the days of looking glass until now, the discrimination against naked, native peoples has barely changed. And I'm done speaking.
1: We've got uh, Ron Haley up from the audience. He's a tribal and regulated cannabis operations. What you got, Ben?
7: Hey, uh, thanks for having me up, Susan. Uh, it's a great article that you just spoke to. Um, I I work specifically with Native American tribes doing cannabis um, outside of the regulated market. So, um, my comment on this is much as.
1: Oh no, Ben, you're roboting.
7: Um, Come on, Ben, come on back, brother. Pull it out, Ben.
1: Can you get in a better spot?
7: Yeah, we need to hear from you. Sorry. Can you hear me?
1: Yep. Go All right. ahead.
7: Sorry about that. So um, the opportunity that's available for tribes is like what we have an independent sovereign vertical. So it allows there are five Native American dispensaries in California that exist that are regulated, that have licenses given by their sovereign nation that has decriminalized cannabis on their land. What allows them to exist is the process needs to be sovereign from seed to sale. So we have tribal cultivators, tribal processors, tribal distribution, and then tribal retails. Um, it's exclusive of tax, you know, that each tribe gets to kind of call their shots as to how they want to see that. Ford Independence doesn't charge a tax. Um, Chuck Chansey charges a 10% tribal tax. The unique thing is it's, it's true social equity, right? It's, it's the opportunity for a group of people that have been discriminated against to advocate and campaign for themselves to cultivate something they've been growing for a long time and bring it to market in their own manner outside of the bureaucracy that you know surrounds the state regulated system um, so it's a uh, you know it's tough and I think certain states will make it more difficult but each tribe via their sovereign immunity has the ability to operate in an independent cannabis business as long as it exists within those confines that I just laid out
5: Exactly right, Ben. So that's why I kind of wonder why they're saying that they're left out, because they're able to operate outside of the rules of everyone else. They can create their own rules, which I think is amazing for them. And anyone that thinks that they are being left out should go over and check out Wu in Nevada, because they definitely are not being left out.
7: Well, NUBU has a compact with the state, right? So Washington and Nevada tribes got together, signed a deal with the state. They have their tax shelter, their sovereign immunity. They have the ability to embellish the dispensary or the cannabis experience beyond what the state can say, offering a drive-through or a consumption lounge, but they sell state-regulated products. So they're half in, half out. Um, you know, uh, Tribal Nation Flower Company, and outside of Fresno, like it's, it's a true independent. So there, there's no state, re, state regulated anything inside the shop. Everything that you find inside the shop is produced by a Native American tribe or individual and then subsequently tested with a state approved lab. So the regulations there, most of the regulation that surrounds like independent tribal cannabis is largely predicated on uh, gaming regulation.
9: Yeah so and Jason Jason before you go say that everything's sort of free and clear and fair for the tribes. In South Dakota, for example, the tribes announced that they were gonna start selling and then the governor announced that anyone who any white person who goes on this reservation and buys will be immediately arrested at the border of the of the tribal lands. I'm I'm so pretty it's not, sure I'm pretty sure she didn't use clear. the
5: word white person, Chris. Let's yeah, I'm just pretty, keep it real. I, I'm pretty okay, sure I, I'm pretty, I know pretty sure she did not is a prohibitionist, I'm against her just like you, but at the same time I'm pretty sure she
2: didn't use the word white person. Semantic games, Jason. Um, didn't, didn't didn't we cover didn't we cover story a couple of months? I think back the language where, would be nice. um, a gentleman, where a gentleman was actually uh, growing on his own land. I think it was in New Mexico, and DEA agents went in there and raided him for having like like two pot plants on his own property, and he was on a Native American uh, reservation.
9: Yeah, it's a daily. Chris,
5: call. the language would be non-tribal member, um and also okay. Also, too, a, a, a while ago, High Times was going to do a High Times Cannabis Cup in Nevada um, on Indian Reservation. And the federal government came in and told them that if you do this event and anyone leaves with cannabis from there, we're gonna prosecute them as if, as if they're crossing crossing a border as because that technically is how
9: they view it. Yeah, exactly my point.
1: Okay, we yeah, that, that was great, Christopher. Thank you so much. And thank you for your insight, Ben. You've got a wonderful radio voice. You should be on the podcast. Let's keep moving.
5: All right, well, coming up next, we have Roz McCarthy. She's a Florida-based entrepreneurial badass leading the charge for the ultimate cannabis lifestyle brand, Black Buddha Cannabis. Also, the founder and CEO of Minorities for Medical Cannabis. Coming up next to this stage, what do you have for
3: us this morning, Roz? Hey, good morning, everybody. Roz McCarthy here, and my story comes from MJ Biz Daily, and this is from Mr. Omar Sasserbay. And um, the title uh, says, Can DEA Back Cannabis Growers Strike Gold Via Drug Development? Um, And it was really interesting story because basically in a nutshell, um, um, you know, speaking to the fact that you have these different companies now that are getting support from the DEA to grow for research. And they're looking at how's this. How's this going to play out from the FDA perspective and from creating products and normalizing cannabis and putting it on the shelf for patients so i'll start with the University of Mississippi was the first entity authorized by the federal government to grow marijuana for research purposes. The cannabis industry hit a a, a hit a possible milestone in March when Bright Green Corporation, a Florida company with conditional Approval from the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration to grow marijuana for research purposes applied to list on the NASDAQ stock exchange. If successful, Bright Green would become the very first U.S. plant-touching company to list on a major U.S. stock exchange. But the move also highlights, highlights the lofty, some say unrealistic, financial ambitions of such companies. And it raises the question of whether a business model based on DEA approval is realistic from a financial standpoint. The five entities registered with the DEA as bulk manufacturer marijuana growers are allowed to grow and sell marijuana, flour, and extract to researchers registered with the federal agency. Those researchers can be at universities, pharmaceutical companies, and other entities. The University of Mississippi Mississippi received the first DEA cultivation registration in 1968 while four more entities receive registrations in 2021. Um, three of the other four entities that have secured DEA approval are private companies, while the Scottsdale Research Institute in, in Cave Creek, Arizona, is a nonprofit focused on determining the general medical, medical safety and efficacy of cannabis and cannabis products. And I think that's what's led by um, Dr. Sue Sicily. The, uh, the other three companies are Biopharmaceutical Research Co., Co- in Castroville, California, Groff, North America, and Pennsylvania, and Royal Emerald Pharmaceuticals in Desert Hot Springs, California. So how can such drug development be a money winner? Well, the answer, by partnering with pharmaceutical companies and multi-state operators to develop drugs approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration that could be sold by prescription or even over-the-counter. Each company attained DEA, Bulk cannabis manufacturing re- registration in 2021. Conceptually, the opportunity is phenomenal. If you total up all of the pharmaceutical sales for the indications that cannabis can address, like sleep, pain um, relief, sleep—I'm sorry, sleep, pain relief, nausea, etc.—it's a $330 billion a year market. There's lots and lots of activity to be had in this pharmaceutical facilitator area," says Joe um, Gribes. CEO of Groff North America. But he added, you have to be patient because it takes several years to get through the FDA process. So, again, the article goes on to talk about um, the doubts over the DEA based business model. What does that mean for the future? And also um, specifically talk about drug development dreams. Um, what does it mean for growers? How can they focus on drug development and to partner with pharmaceutical companies? What does that mean from a financial perspective? I would love to hear from, you know, my colleagues and anyone from the audience that wants to weigh in and talk about, you know, again, these are DEA-supported businesses and their dreams of turning this opportunity to do research into a cash cow. I'm Roz McCarthy, signing off from the State of Cannabis News Hour. would love to hear your thoughts
4: no cop whatsoever police officers and anybody that was on the other side of the war on drugs should be banned from benefiting from cannabis period the end that includes places like the med in cal in colorado if it's paid for by cannabis tax dollars and you were on the other side of this fight you should not be benefiting at all period
1: yes i agree troy did you want to weigh in we're at time, but yes.
4: go ahead. Yes, yes, I strongly
2: agree as well, Guy and Susan. Uh, but uh, this brings up another issue that I had a long time ago, and I didn't see, speaking of the black and white issues in the talk today, I don't understand why the black Greek organizations with the college-educated individuals, the college-educated dropouts,
5: the incubators that could be created for black Greeks, why they haven't implemented something
2: like this. And maybe with their scared self, with the MPHC and their Congress uh, uh, backing, Maybe this would be something that they would go for, because I think that would be a great advance for the African-American groups as a whole to get into it. And I don't understand why nonprofits, being nonprofits, why they didn't.
1: All right. Let's keep smoking the news. Yeah. Raj, you wanted to do a final thought.
3: Oh, just a final thought. I I hear you, Brother Troy, and it's a big old long story and conversation about that. This article in particular is just, again, talking about these different companies who, you know, there was a whole big weigh-in and conversation about what do you want to see working with the DEA, and Gee's point is basically, like, you have been, like, legalized uh, the, the prohibition of this plant and the, the disproportionate impact of people of color, and just how does the federal government then say we're going to weigh in on this, allow researchers to research, then go partner with pharmaceutical companies, and then go make money off of it when it's been so against it for so long, it just doesn't make sense. So, um, I hear you, Troy, and this is the ongoing story and we'll we'll keep you know talking about it
2: man it's it's tough out here it's tough out here these big corporations and the government they all after our ducats so um up next this industry og veteran and dope dads a known defender of the culture never scared to speak up for legacy operators he's also the co-founder and ceo of papa and barkley members of the cannabis clergy please take your seats and put your phones on do not disturb it's now time for the gospel of giro court what you
4: got for us my man Good morning, Rico. Good Morning, Jason. Good morning, Susan. Team, today, uh, if you have a license in California, please hold on, I'm not trying to trigger you, but we need to get this news out. So this is coming out of the National Law Review and it's titled, No April Fool, starting April 1st, cannabis operators face CEQA compliance requirements for state licenses. First, I want to say I highly recommend if you're an operator in this industry that you read this article, get with your legal team and make sure you understand your exposure. It's way too much to unpack in four minutes and 20 seconds. But broadly, CEQA stands for the California Environmental Quality Act. This is not just for cannabis industries, but it is going to be leveled against us. And basically, April 1st marked the beginning Of the end for provisional cannabis license it also ushered significant changes to the renewal process for previously granted provisional license these modifications now require applicants to comply with the california environmental quality act a complex statewide policy of environmental protections fraught with potential traps for those unversed in the law before an operator is eligible to be awarded a cannabis license this requirement alone carries the potential to create a much higher barrier to entry so the devil is in the lack of detail. Sequa is not clear. It's a case by case basis. And it's the type of thing where if your neighbor disliked you and you're going through Sequa application and they decide to file a claim, it will jam you up. This exposes us in a way that is not, is not clear, right? So some of the things that they look for in Sequa are aesthetics. How vague is that? agricultural and forest resource, air quality, biological resources, geology and soil, greenhouse gas emissions, energy consumption, hazardous and hazardous materials. It goes on and on. Noise, traffic and transportation. And essentially, whether it's the state. So under where the local jurisdictions are required to inform the DCC of potential environmental impacts of any proposed cannabis operations. However, because California instituted dual licensing, either the local jurisdiction or the DCC, may be the public agency, tasked with issuing, with ensuring SQL review has occurred. But again, that sequel review is literally, you could just get a hater. My gleaning of the article is like, we need to make sure that we're secure from essentially haters as we go through the sequel process, because there's so many vagaries that somebody could literally say, I don't like the color of your storefront and therefore you're an eyesore and now you're not getting your sequel application. And so we already know that we have a lot of people that dislike Canvas for irrational reasons. And I think this potentially opens up a door for those haters to come after our licenses. And of course, the money's at play, because the more money you have, the more you can shut people up. If you're an operator with not too many ducats in your pocket and somebody comes after you, this is a law that they could definitely use against you. So I'm gonna leave it there because I think you guys have to read this and get with your legal teams. If you're not aware of CEQA, Get on top of it and make sure that you understand how this is going to affect your license renewal or if you're in the license application. This is Guy Roquart reporting for the State of Cannabis Hour.
6: I'll just jump in here. Great story, Guy. Thank you so much for talking about CEQA. Definitely uh, appreciate the trigger warning because this is um, something that always makes my eyes just roll back into my head. But, uh, but you know, there was an article that came out pretty recently where uh, a lot of operators thought that their provisional licenses just ended uh, with some of these changes. But just to kind of clarify um, and reinforce what you were saying, it's the in the renewal process that the CEQA compliance has to be demonstrated. So if you have a current provisional license, you know, you're not losing it in this process, but you just have to meet these compliance benchmarks.
2: It's like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, huh?
5: Yeah, if you get, I couldn't. You're exactly right, Gee. Um, I love this story. If you if you get a uh, prohibitionist sequa uh, representative, you are going to be fucked. And so I hope that the that uh, California does something about this. You know, some type of some type of uh, querying uh, the the applicant or excuse me the uh, the regulators in, in some type of way, almost kind of similar to like uh, like picking a jury.
1: Is that what happened to cookies when they had to repaint their, their building to a, a lighter blue? Do you know, I forget where uh, that was. I don't know.
4: Yeah. I, I didn't know that, but it wouldn't surprise me, you know, especially like I'm in a small town now and like we have neighbors that just think that cannabis businesses are an eyesore. And when it comes to the public comment period, those are the people that show up at your, uh, you know, the County seat to say craziness. So
1: I wouldn't be surprised. All right. Let's keep smoking the news.
5: Coming up next, next she is Shalina Panu. She's an attorney at law focused on bridging the gap between cannabis entertainment and psychedelics. She's also the co-owner of one of the most amazing IG pages, and, and the other owner being Mark Zuckerberg. Coming next to the stage is the founder of Cannabis Blog Pot and podcast, Shall We Toke? What do you have for us this morning, Shalina?
8: Thanks so much, Jason. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is Amsterdam Mayor Moves Forward with Tourist Ban on Cannabis Coffee Shops. Back in February, I discussed how the mayor of Amsterdam, Femke Halsema, had proposed the idea of establishing a foreign tourist ban, aka a residence-only rule, on cannabis coffee shops. This tourist ban would allow only locals to use these shops in hopes of controlling the supply chain and making tourism, especially in the red light district, much more manageable. According to Dutch News, the mayor stated this past Monday that she wants to move ahead with this plan to ban these cannabis shops at tours in order to tackle the local soft drugs market. The mayor wants to introduce the residents-only rule to the current 166 licensed cannabis coffee shops in hopes of managing the cannabis market. However, as stated in Shenzhen Visa Info News, research shows that only 66 of the total 166 licensed shops are a necessity for the local demand. Further, 58, one, 58% of international tourists who travel to Amsterdam chose this city due to the ability to consume cannabis. However, if only the locals were to consume, then Amsterdam will supply, would support less than 70 cannabis shops. The mayor told city councillors that it's a, ne- it's a necessary intervention to ban sales to tourists and that this is the first step towards regulation. She states that her concerns about a worrying a worrying interdependence amongst the hard and soft drug trade and that money coming from cannabis trade easily finds its way into hard drugs. She further states that most of the city's major problems come from the cannabis market, specifically the nuisance from drug tourism as well as violence and serious crime. She continues to stress that the cannabis market is too large and that there are too many links to organized crimes. Further, she believes that making this move will keep tourists away who only come to the city to smoke. According to NL Times, on Tuesday, three shops sent eight alternative proposals to the mayor plans. One proposal includes a trial which would allow delivery service for the coffee shops in order to combat illegal crime. The mayor has acknowledged receipt of these proposals and states that they will include it in their debate. However, the government has maintained that the resident-only rule is the best solution for drug crimes in the city centre. The issue Amsterdam has right now in implementation is the shortage of law enforcement, making it difficult to impose. However, if the mayor deems the situation to be a necessity, it's well within her powers to impose this plan with or without the majority council support. What are your thon- thoughts on Amsterdam co- possible tourist ban on cannabis shops? My name is Shalyn, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. This confuses me. I don't understand. Amsterdam is weed. What the heck?
5: All the prohibitionists have taken over Amsterdam, and they're making it fucking terrible.
1: Well, they're coming to West Hollywood, right, Jason?
5: Not the prohibitionists. All the, we kick prohibitionists No, the tourists. Out. No, yeah, we're bringing all the tourists to West Hollywood. One hundred percent.
2: New Amsterdam. Exactly. <laughs> Amsterdam. better amsterdam.
5: amsterdam well i just i have to say though west hollywood we're gonna definitely have to get a red light district
9: called yeah they're allo- in amsterdam they're still allowing the prostitutes in the windows but uh not not allowing uh, tourists to go and have a little pot. And, 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 and they're,
5: they're not allowing the mushrooms in the
4: smart shops either
2: and they start the the green light district over there
5: yes
4: I, like the, green I, like, I prefer the red lights red lights All All right. Right. i can't believe that they're, they're still making this mistake prohibition does not work you know if they really think that just banning it is gonna cannabis finds a way tourists are still gonna get there i'm going to amsterdam i'm finding weed and i'm going to smoke and go to museums because that's what you do that mayor does not even know his own city it's ridiculous
5: yeah it, he. It, while you're there you should smoke in the museum
1: it, it makes absolutely no sense. And I, my concern when I read this article was that other uh, mayors in other cities are going to go, oh, what? Amsterdam, they, they are the, the OG of weed cities. If they don't want it, then why would we?
9: Well, that's what prohibitionists will say. But other more savvy people will recognize that Amsterdam is losing a golden opportunity to bring tourists into their city. It's a stupid move, it doesn't Well, that, that, that,
5: that, that's the reason why they're actually doing this, Chris, is because their their tourism board, to my understanding, is basically saying that they don't want to be known as the uh, drug capital of Europe. That ship sailed years ago. I agree with you, Guy. I'm just, just, you know, that's what the fucking crazy wackadoodles are thinking.
9: No, they just lost their leadership opportunity. They just lost it. They gave it away. Indeed. <laughs> So coming straight out of
2: Long Beach, he's the CEO of Fruit Slabs and Cannabis, and a cannabis and intellectual property attorney with a beard stronger than Joe Biden gas prices. Let's go, Brandon Dorsky. Bring us home,
11: brother. Thanks for having me today. Uh, My story is an update on the Cushy Punch saga, the headlines, California seeks sanction in row over unlawful pot gummies, as reported by Law 360. Department of Cannabis Control here in California submitted filings last week against Ruben Kachian and his attorney Margarita Salazar in connection with their willfully ignoring a court order seeking answers to discovery in relation to the 2020 lawsuit against the Cushy Punch parties. The answers they seek relate to the unlicensed Cushy operations that were discovered a few years ago and produced an alleged 64 million worth of cannabis gummies without proper license. The suit, originally filed in September 2020, alleged Vertical Bliss Inc. created more than 3.3 million pounds of Cushy Punch-branded gummies in an unlicensed factory. And the DCC claims the manufacturer and attorney have stonewalled their request for information, and now they're seeking sanctions for that stonewall. Quote, nearly 10 months following the initial discovery request, and more than 85 days after the court's discovery order, Defendants in Salazar still have not provided responses to the form interrogatories, said the state. The state is gunning for a sanction of only $9,185 against the pair to reflect the hours they have put in as a result of the disobedience of the order. The state went further to request that Kachian be prohibited from offering documents and witnesses that support special or affirmative defenses in lieu of his failure to provide documents in response to the discovery requests. State also claimed they gave Kachian and his counsel multiple extensions to respond over a five month period and that they then failed to appear for a court hearing. The whole battle stems from the October 2019 raid of their unlicensed factory where cannabis concentrate, gummies, vapes, and equipment for infusion were all discovered, as well as records indicating that there had been unlawful operations running for about 18 months. Another hearing is scheduled for May 3rd and a jury trial is set for January 2023. The case is Department of Cannabis Control versus Vertical Bliss Inc. Cushy Punch had a significant footprint in the edibles marketplace, and despite these setbacks, they have actually not gone the way of the dinosaur. They still exist. The continued existence of Cushy Punch, I'd say, is a testament to the lack of teeth that California enforcement has. And if you're playing both sides of the fence in California, and you get caught, this case tends to point out it's going to take years for the process to play out while you're still potentially holding on to your money if it wasn't seized and or your property and you're continuing to operate. So not really sure uh, about this mess, but it's just indicative of the entire mess that is the state of California's cannabis operations. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News.
1: Brandon, what is the shelf life for those gummies? It seems like 64 million... Dollars worth? Was it dollars worth or pieces?
11: $64 million worth, 3.3 million pounds. Uh, and technically, by law, they would need to have an expiration date of a year. But, I, you know, if you're going with unlicensed production, I don't know if you're following the state's requirements for uh, expiration dates. Why would
5: you?
1: No.
11: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I just wonder, I mean, what uh, what condition are they in? When I mean, that's a lot of product.
5: Well, when there's so much booth, you have to turn it into a whole wow. bunch of distillate to make a whole bunch of gummies.
4: Gee, hey, you get the last word. Uh, yeah, so look, I, you know, I would never say anything against traditional operation. It's all about safe access. However, as a compliant operator not playing on both sides... That's distressing because there's a reason why they didn't go the way of the dinosaur. They're generating cash from another source, sources that, Brandon, folks like you and I who are trying to do it right are not getting and therefore we're suffering. And so it's got to stop. And so if there are operators that are playing both sides of the fence, now's your time to be compliant. Help us support this industry in the right way.
1: Amen, Guy. Well, we've reached the end of the show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay on Clubhouse, or in a few hours you can get the podcast, or you can check us out on our YouTube channel. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines every day to bring us just what we need to know. Thank you, Rico and Jason, for co-producing the show, and jaja for being our pinup girl today. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city council state, or country, your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust.
0: You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour your daily dose
1: say goodbye Rico
0: goodbye
11: I see somebody's somebody's messing around with the my pillow guy <laughs>